Genesis chapter 16. We are beginning a new chapter today. Well, that excited none of you. There we go. As a reminder, as we concluded chapter 15, we saw how God made a covenant with Abram that his posterity would inherit the land. Some call it the land covenant. God had caused Abram to be in a deep sleep. And then God manifested himself by a smoking furnace and a burning lamp. And God passed between those animal pieces. Since Abram could not and did not pass through the pieces with God, and because God went through alone, this covenant at the end of chapter 15 is all dependent upon God. Now, I remind you of that covenant ceremony at the end of chapter 15, because as we come to chapter 16, we will see how Abram has lost sight of the covenant. And with that in mind, look with me, verses 1 through 6 of Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, going unto my maid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maiden to thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge betwixt me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Wow. This is one of those sections in the Bible that would make for a great episode on tabloid TV. Right? You know those shows where the the networks will shamelessly promote and profit off of someone's ungodliness, their turmoil, their pain all because they are choosing to live their life apart from God's Word. Amen. This account is not recorded for our entertainment. Rather, it is recorded to caution and to teach us. In fact, there's so much we can draw out of this that I had such a hard time preparing it because I didn't know where to settle in at. So I decided, let's just take it line by line. We'll see how the Lord leads. Amen. So we read in the first statement of verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. You may recall that the very first thing that the Bible says about Sarai over in chapter 11, after we are told she's Abram's wife, is this in in chapter 11 and verse 30, But Sarai was barren. She had no child. But then in chapter 12, God told Abram, I will make of thee a great nation. 
God also said, unto thy seed will I give this land. In chapter 13, God said, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever, and I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. Obviously, God was going to give Abram a child of promise. That's God's intent from all of these promises that He gave. But in chapter 15, Abram asked the Lord, What wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold to me, thou hast given no seed. And Abram's faith in the promise we talked about back then, it was faltering. And God replied, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Then God said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. God reiterates his promise to bless Abram with a child. It renewed his faith in the promised child to come. Remember we read, Abram believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And now in chapter 16, we are reminded again that Sarai was barren. I think I've done this every time we've come to a section like this, but let's remember how long it's been since the promise has first come to Abram. It was back when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. We don't know how old Abram was when they departed Ur, but we know they ended up dwelling in Haran, which may have been for several years. We are told Abram was 75 in chapter 12 when they departed Haran. And we're told in verse 3 here, Abram had dwelt in the land for 10 years. The point is, it's already been well over a decade since this promise was first given. He was in Ur, and God said, I'll make of you a great nation. Now we can't know for sure, but we could easily be approaching 15 years since that promise was first given to them. Certainly it's been at least 10 years, that's how long they've been in the land. At the beginning of chapter 16, Abram is now 85, and Sarai is 75. And depending on how all this timed out, they may already be 86 and 76. Because at the end of this chapter, Abram's going to be 86 when Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Now I've taken the time to establish this, because most of us in here could read through chapters 12 through 15 in about 10 to 15 minutes. But it's been 10 to 15 years in their life. Sometimes we read it and we just go so quick we're not really understanding how how long this has been. I think it's over in Exodus God can cover 400 years in one verse. <laughs> anyway, it, it's been 10 to 15 years. Keep that in mind. Next, in the second half of verse 1, we are told and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And we're told again in verse 3 that Hagar was an Egyptian. This is potentially significant because of what happened back in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we talked about how following God's will requires for us to have trust in God. We saw how Abram had been obedient to God's call to leave Ur of the Chaldees. He followed God's leading into a land of God's choosing. But not long after arriving, Abram discovers God must have messed up And he led Abram to the land in the middle of a sore famine. No, God didn't mess up. Because the famine was so bad, Abram decides, let's go down to Egypt. 
Let's sojourn there until the famine is over. And there's debate on whether Abram was right or wrong in his decision to leave for Egypt. Was he exhibiting a lack of trust in God? Was he moving by faith or not? Well, we aren't ever told, but the Bible never mentions God directing him. We didn't find Abram praying like he had been doing before. One thing for sure is Abram's approaching Egypt. His walk with God is off. Because remember, that's when he told Sarai, hey, I need you to lie about our marriage. Just say you're my sister, which is a half-truth, and don't mention that we're married because they're going to want to kill me because you are so smoking hot. <laughs> Anytime we go to a new city, I tell Adrian, just tell them you're my sister. <laughs> Usually you see the other way around. She's like, just tell them you're my brother. Yes. <laughs> It was four months ago when we covered that, but I hope you're remembering some of this. Uh, on the way to Egypt, Abram, he started to lean into his own understanding, right? He convinces her to tell this lie. It was actually a plan they concocted before they ever left Ur, if you study all the passages out on that subject. Abram feels like they're going to kill me so that they can marry Sarai. And, and you really need to go back and listen to that message. But long story short, because they never revealed their marriage, Sarai was in fact taken into Pharaoh's house and he was going to take her for his wife. And during that time, likely that purification period that you see over in the book of Esther, when a woman was brought into a, a pharaoh, a ruler, a king's harem, they had this lengthy purification process. And during that time, Genesis twelve sixteen says, And he, speaking of the pharaoh, And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, and he asses, and men servants, and maid servants, and she asses, and camels. So we're not told for sure, but it makes sense that Hagar the Egyptian would have been one of the maid servants that the Pharaoh gave them when he was in Egypt. In fact, the name Hagar, which many say signifies a stranger or a sojourner, was given to her. Because Hagar is purely Hebrew, and they must have given her that name, indicating the fact that they had been sojourning in Egypt. If that's true, it builds the case that she came into Abram's house while they sojourned down to Egypt, maybe out of God's will. Because God never told them to go down there, that we know from Scripture. God brought them to the land of Canaan, not the land of Egypt. Now, why bring all this up? Certainly, I don't want to be guilty of too much speculation, but if Hagar entered their house as a result of their journey down to Egypt, and if Abram sojourned down there without consulting God, then who knows, perhaps this whole scene in chapter 16 could have been avoided. Then again, if not Hagar, it might have been another maidservant. I don't know. Certainly, Hagar wouldn't have had to have been involved in this. She could have been spared all this if they just would have stayed in the land of Canaan and trusted God. It's amazing how our decisions affect others. The point is, we have to be careful with the decisions we make and the moves that we make. Things may make sense to our understanding. And it all may make sense on the surface. But if God is not in it, the ramifications of those decisions may come against you years later. Amen. For example, be very careful about leaving a solid local church 
because things look better over yonder. Don't sacrifice your family's spiritual growth and all the blessings you have for some temporal gain in this life. I've seen too many who have chased after what this life has to offer at the expense of following after God. And as their spiritual life becomes secondary, their family suffers, and the outcome is more than they ever bargained for. Believe me when I say I'm not trying to use scare tactics with you. I'm trying to caution you to be sure that your decisions are always filtered through the Word of God. Well, the information in in verse 1, that Sarai was barren and that she had a handmaid, it's laying the foundation to us, the reader, for the account that is about to follow. In the first half of verse 2, we read, And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. Now we must understand, it is God who opens and closes the womb. In chapter 20, we read how God closed up the wombs in the house of Abimelech. In chapter 29, God opened Leah's womb. In chapter 30, God opened Rachel's womb. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, God had closed Hannah's womb. And then later in that chapter, He allowed her to conceive. Genesis 30 and verse 2, And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, Am I in God's stead? Am I in God's stead? Who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Jacob's saying, I can't control that. That is God. Genesis 33, 5, And he, Esau, he lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are those with thee? And he, speaking of Jacob, said, The children which God hath graciously given thy servant. Therefore, any fruitfulness or barrenness is the Lord's doing. Now, that can be hard to come to terms with. Because sometimes we wonder, why are the wicked blessed with children, while some who are righteous have none? And I imagine that's a question that's troubled every generation. Matthew Henry's commentary was likely published in 1706. The good old days. No later than 1710. And here's what he wrote in his day on the issue. Quote, The mercy of children is often given to the wicked and denied to good people. Though good people would take most care of their education. God does herein as it pleased Him. End quote. They pondered that question back then. It's always been a troubling question. And if we're not careful, it can lead to wrong accusations against God. And we must learn to trust that God's thoughts and God's ways are much higher than ours. We must learn to agree with God's providence and sovereignty. Back to our text, Sarai says, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. And as I was preparing this, I thought, those of us who have readily conceived children, I don't think we can grasp the weight of this statement. Like those who have greatly desired children and have not been given any yet. Or those where it took many years of prayer. I'm just saying, this is a very heartbreaking statement by Saria. 
It's like God puts in a woman something nurturing and a desire to be a provider and a caretaker. Amen. That's why most of the caretaking fields are like 80 to 90% women. Right? Most of the uh, Lincoln Log stuff is 80, 90% men. Right? Have I mentioned before that we're wired different? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, preacher, shut up. I want to give you some pastoral advice here to those of you who have had children easily. If you find yourself talking with those who want children but haven't been able to yet, be quiet. Don't offer your advice. Just pray with them. Be mindful that they are carrying a very heavy burden. Consider Hannah in the Bible. It says she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore over her lack of a child. Listen to her heart in 1 Samuel 1.11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. She told Eli the priest, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have poured out my soul before the Lord, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Hannah considered it an affliction to be childless. She felt forgotten of the Lord. She so badly wanted a child that she tells the Lord, if you'll just give me this child, I'll give him away to you. She would rather have a child and give it away than never be blessed with a child. I'm just saying, try to be sensitive when you're talking to others. And I'm telling you this based upon my past experiences of people coming to me and voicing their frustration. They don't want to be rude to you, so I will. By all means, be an encouragement to trust the Lord. But they don't need a life coach in that moment. I'll let you figure that out. Now, I know your intentions are in the right place, but do you really think someone who feels afflicted and forgotten of God in not having children hasn't already considered all their options? Just pray for them. Pray with them. Now, back to Sarai. She recognizes her barrenness was the Lord's doing. She understands God has the power to close the womb, But where is her faith that God can open the womb? If she knew God was the one who was withholding children from her, then why can't she trust that God is able to provide her with a child? Do you see what I'm trying to say? I know that's easier said than done. But isn't it interesting how we can be guilty of acknowledging God's ability to withhold over God's ability to provide? We get so negative. And we end up saying things like, I know God did it for them, but He would never do that for me. Right? We get negative. And getting negative is a tactic of the devil. Remember when He first showed up in the Garden of Eden, He twisted God's, permi- God's command of permission that ye may eat of every tree except one. He twisted it and said, Yea, hath God said ye shall not eat of... Every tree of the garden, he made it into a negative. 
And what we end up doing is getting very negative and it gets worse. It progresses until we say things like, well, God doesn't care about me. Yes, He does. When that thought enters your mind, it is a lie from the devil. And over one issue, we end up forgetting all the manifold blessings that God has given to us already. The Bible says He daily loadeth us with benefits. But we can allow one withheld blessing to overshadow all of God's goodness toward us. I've been guilty of this a time or two. And I'm preaching to myself. But we need to be thankful for all the ways God is blessing instead of focusing on the blessings we want but don't have. We have to trust that our Heavenly Father knows what's best for us. That He knows the best timing. Because if we don't trust Him fully, we'll become tempted to take matters into our own hands, circumnavigate God to get what we want. Don't believe me? Just look at what follows in the middle of verse 2 through verse 3. Look at what it says. I pray thee, go in unto my maid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. I want what I want. Not trusting God. Let's find a way without God. Let's circumnavigate God. She wants a child, and we know from chapter 15, Abram wants a child, but instead of them both trusting God and His timing, they decide to move independent of God, circumnavigate God, in order to get the blessings that they've desired all along. Is everybody with me? We typically preach this as if they're trying to help God fulfill His promise to bless Abram with a child, and perhaps we're meant to understand this, but consider this. At no point are we told they ever have God's promise in mind. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I would think somewhere it's on their mind. But what's interesting is she never mentions this proposal in a way to get what God has promised. But notice what she says. That I may obtain children by her. Where's the we? I want children and I I can obtain it through her probably save that to next week, but Abram's like, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Women, be careful what you tempt your men with. Now, that's just something to chew on. I mean, where's the we in this? Seems pretty selfish to me. What we do know is Sarai wants a child. Abram wants a child. She sees her situation as hopeless, and they both decide to take matters in their own hands to get what they want without ever consulting God. Now, if they're thinking that this was a way to help God out, let me go ahead and preach it. We aren't supposed to help God out. What God needs from us is for us to surrender to His will for our life. He wants us to trust in His ability to do through us what we cannot do in our flesh. We don't need to take matters into our own hands. You see, we're not supposed to make plans and then ask God to bless those plans. Have you been there before? Yeah, sure. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to try to fit God into our plan, but we need to allow God to fit us into His plan that He already has for us. 
Now certainly there seems to be a lapse of faith here. At a minimum on Abram's part, because someone might make the argument, well, God never said openly that the child was going to come through him and Sarah. I'll touch on that next week. I think it's implied. So what caused this lapse of faith? No doubt it was the amount of time. They've already been 10 years in the land. I think that's why we're told that. We see in verse 3 that they have been there for 10 years. Remember that he's 85. She's 75. Hey, and here's a news flash for you. Isaac is still 14 to 15 years away. In our flesh, we hate waiting. Right? Some of you are like, hurry up and finish. <laughs> you bunch of fleshly Christians. This is why long-suffering is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Which means in your flesh, you hate waiting. You need to walk in the Spirit if you're going to learn to be patient. It takes dying to our flesh. If you haven't figured it out yet, hey, listen, God's going to put you in circumstances where you have to wait. You're going to have to learn to trust Him. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a backslidden spouse. Maybe it's a rebellious child. There's going to be seasons where it can become very difficult to wait on God. And while we're waiting, we can become tempted to take matters into our own hands and we will experience our own lapse of faith as we seek to bring about the desired result because hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And it's during the waiting period when you may begin to think, well, I must have missed God's will for my life. Because God isn't working on your time, it must not have been God's will. Never doubt in the night what God has revealed in the light. And it could be God is trying to teach you and conform you into His image while you're in the waiting period. I think sometimes God is waiting for us to just give up. Stop trying to figure everything out. Stop trying to fix everything on your own. Stop trying to have your own timing in everything. And like the old saying says, let go and let God. You see, God deserves all the glory. We heard that in our adult Sunday school. And when we finally die to self and we have nothing left but to trust God, that's when God seems to move mightily on behalf of His people because that's when God gets all the glory. Isaiah 30, 18 And therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you. And therefore will He be exalted that He may have mercy upon you. The Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. See, I don't like waiting. I know. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Our Father has reasons peculiar to Himself for thus keeping us waiting. Sometimes it is to show His power and His sovereignty that men may know that Jehovah has a right to give or to withhold. 
More frequently, the delay is for our profit. Thou art perhaps kept waiting in order that thy desires may be more fervent. God knows that delay will quicken and increase desire. And that if He keeps thee waiting, thou will see thy necessity more clearly and will seek Him more earnestly. And that thou will prize thy mercy all the more for its long tarrying. End quote. Are you in a situation today where you're waiting on God to move on your behalf? Don't give up. Don't take matters into your own hands. But learn to wait patiently on God. Give space and time for God to work. Remember that He moves on His time, not your time. Spurgeon went on to write this. There may also be something wrong in thee which has need to be removed before the joy of the Lord is given. Thou mayest be placing some little reliance on thyself instead of trusting simply and entirely to the Lord Jesus. Or God makes thee tarry a while that He may the more fully display the riches of His grace to thee at last. Thy prayers are all filed in heaven and if not immediately answered, they are certainly not forgotten but in a little while shall be fulfilled to thy delight and satisfaction. Let not despair make thee silent, but continue instant in earnest supplication. End quote. Maybe you're waiting on God to work in your life because you're asking God to work in the life of a family member. It could be while you're, wait, you're wanting this and you're waiting on God to break someone else that God is actually working to further break you. Is everybody getting what I'm saying? Listen, don't ever forget that God knows how to work everything for good. And He knows how to work in multiple directions. We get tunnel vision and God says, yeah, I hear your prayer, but I need you to be broken. Give space and time for the Holy Spirit to work in hearts as only He can. He moves on His time, not ours. It stinks, doesn't it? Yeah, when you're going through it, man, you understand what I'm saying. It's hard. It's difficult. And you say, God, I need you to move. God says, not yet. I'm going to wait until I can be exalted. After 10 to 15 years, Abram and Sarai had a difficult time waiting on God's time. And it led to this lapse of faith. We don't have to be guilty of the same problem. I know it's difficult. At times it's very difficult. But God will do a better job of bringing about His purposes in the heart of an individual more than you can. Are you waiting on a promise from God to be fulfilled? Are you waiting for God to move on your behalf? Be patient. Don't get ahead of God. Don't try to circumnavigate God. Don't be impatient. Don't try to force a blessing that God is withholding. And in the meantime, count the blessings you do have. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. and He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. 
It's going to take courage. Psalm 62, 5, My soul wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. We want Him to work. We want what He wants. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26, The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. I don't know if I ever quote this right, but the choir sings something to this effect. When we come to the place where He's all we have, we'll find He's all we need. Did you catch that? Or how about the hymn, Those who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Trust God. He's at work. He is not going to waste your situation. We're going to have to pick this account back up next week. There's a lot more to cover. But if you need to do business with God this morning, I'd ask you to come and talk to Him about it. Let's pray.